Last week, looking at the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Uh, it's eighth and final week. It's been a fun couple months. Um, I encourage you, if you've missed one or all of the prior messages, uh, they are all available on the sermon library or on the podcast. Um, you can just search Calvary the Hill. Um, but yeah, I'd encourage you to go back through it. It's been interesting. It's been fun. It's been encouraging. Um, to look at the person of the Holy Spirit in, in the early church, when the church started, and what, what is he like, what is he about, uh, and all that stuff. So it's been great. In the, the la- these last two weeks, so last week and this week, we've been kind of taking them as case studies. So last week we looked at a passage in Acts 8 about how the Holy Spirit guides us as individual followers of Jesus. And, and kind of how does that work? So this week what we're doing is zooming out a little bit and asking how the Spirit guides us as the local church. And you've probably maybe heard that term, local church. Basically all it means is a church like this. A church that is in a neighborhood, that's in a city. It's that church, the one you can point to. This group of people right here. This is a local church. We are part of the global church, the universal church, uh, as the creed says, the holy Catholic church, lowercase c, which just means universal. We're part of that community, but we are also a local church. We gather in a time, in a place, in a culture, and we're a people. Here we are. So how does the church, or sorry, how does the spirit guide a local church like ours? And so we'll answer three questions this morning. What churches does the Spirit guide? What does the Spirit guide the church to do? And finally, what does success look like? So how does the Spirit guide the local church? So let's take a look at Acts. We'll be in chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 1 and read all 52 verses. Here we go. Verse 1 of Acts 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the paths, the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind, 
and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him, from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. 
And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high, high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we uh, just present you our time in your word this morning. Uh, we pray that your spirit would illuminate it to us and teach us how he is to lead and guide us, Calvary the Hill, those who call this church home, teach us this morning how you want to guide us into the next season, into the future, Lord, and help us to be sensitive to your leading, and I pray that your word and your gospel would pierce our hearts this morning. Lord, help us to lay aside distractions, to lay aside plans, to lay aside anything we need to mentally so we can focus or so that we can focus on what you want to speak to us personally and corporately. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what churches does the Spirit guide? Looking at verses 1 through 3, we find that the Spirit guides churches that center Jesus. The Spirit guides churches that love to worship Jesus. Reading verses 1 through 3 again. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. This church at Antioch was full of people that loved to worship Jesus. That's what they were doing. The Holy Spirit spoke up in the middle of a worship service, as well as during a time of fasting. Now, it doesn't say that they were worshiping and praying and fasting for a specific reason. It just says that they were, that's what they were doing. That's, you know, uh, meanwhile in Antioch, B-roll B camera, that's what was going on. It was just happening. That's what they were about. In fact, if we, if we look back one paragraph, Saul and Barnabas in verse 25 of chapter 12, they had just returned from carrying a material provision for the church in Jerusalem that was in need due to a famine. So Antioch is in Syria. Jerusalem's in Israel. 
This is a, a bit of a ways. It's, it's a country apart. And so Paul and Bar- or Saul at the time and Barnabas had carried material provisions from a bunch of different churches to Jerusalem to help out. And so notice in verse 25, they, they came back to Antioch, they completed their service, and they didn't finish their task and say to themselves, okay, let's, let's get back to Antioch and then let's figure out what else we can do for God. Let, let's, let's get back and figure out what other ministry we can go out and do for people. No, they returned as a church to a state of being in the Lord's presence. They were just worshiping. They were just being with Jesus. And that was good enough. So for those of us who love to be doing stuff for God, it's important to remember that we need to spend a similar amount of time being with God than doing stuff for him. Why? Why is that important? Why is it important that we, we value time spent in God's presence in worship and adoration and confession and just being? Why is that important? Well, first, it's because we often get things mixed up. We are a working species. We like to do stuff. We like to feel uh, important. We like to accomplish things, and that's not bad. But oftentimes, we feel we need to be doing things to earn God's favor. We get so caught up in good works that we forget the order of operations. In short, we forget the gospel. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 10? It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Then verse 10 hits. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do works matter or do they not? Yes. The key is the order. Your works don't mean jack squat prior to your understanding that nothing you can ever, ever, ever do can make God love you any more or any less. Because he loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. It's not by works. And so we need to remember that as ministers of the gospel, as as Christians who like to get busy doing, we need to remember that it's equally important to spend time together as we see them doing here. Not just individually, although that's important, but time together just being in the presence of God and being grateful and worshipful that we can be in his presence together and that's enough. Secondly, this whole gospel, like, not by works thing, is not, it's not a Christian cop-out so that we don't have to ever do anything. It, it isn't a, God did it all, like, just relax, guys. Just put your feet up for the rest of your life and relax. 
Do we see that happening in church history? No. The Christians have been the ones who started every hospital, every, uh, you know, historically speaking, the Christians are the ones that have taken care of the needs of the people. The, but the being with Christ, what it does, and it's kind of a, it flips it on its head, is it motivates, it energizes, it cultivates creativity for our doing for Christ. If we try to white-knuckle our good works, we're going to burn out real quick. Jesus put it like this. He said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in case you're like, wow, that sounds like an awesome life. Remember that a yoke is work. A yoke is what is put on an ox so that they can pull the plow. This is work. Jesus is saying, come to me. You're tired. You're weary. Come to me. I'm going to give you work. But it's not any kind of work. It's work that I'm co-laboring with you. It's work that is meaningful. It's work that is springing out of a place of rest and victory. That's the kind of work Jesus gives us. There's something about how scandalously good the gospel of Jesus is that it changes us into people who want to pour out our entire lives for the for the sake of the work that God has made for us, because we know that God. That's why the character of God in Christ Jesus, that will blow your mind enough where you're like, sign me up. I'll do whatever. I don't care what I'm going to do. It's for him. If we get it the other way around, we start doing it for our own sake. We start doing it in our own strength. We start doing it Perceiving God's character as one of taskmaster, as one of you best be doing the good stuff or you're going to get it, that's not who he is. He says, come to me, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's that's not easy, though. (laughs) But it's easy because... I just want to be close to him. I just want to be close to him. And if, here's an illustration. So, if my wife were to write a honey-do list, which sometimes she does, um, not that often, but, you know, sometimes there's a running list of things that it'd be good if I got done. Uh, And getting this order wrong would be like me on in an, some evening, she's like, hey, we should, let's watch a movie. Let's just hang out and talk and just have a, just like have a time where we're just connecting. Um, and it would be like me saying, no, 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 no. I want to, I want to work on the honey-do list. Like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to do that until I can get all this stuff done. No, it's, it's that quality time, which 
then I can, that honey-do list, who cares? Like, yeah, I'll just keep it going. I'll do that for the rest of my life. I don't care as long as I get to connect with you. So how do we, as a local church, cultivate being with Christ? The context for this here in Acts, this specific guidance by the Spirit of this church at Antioch, it was a group of Jesus followers practicing the spiritual disciplines together. Here we find them practicing corporate worship and fasting. Then a verse later, we see them returning after hearing from the Spirit, returning to those disciplines. It says, after they heard from the Spirit, after fasting and praying again. And so they were, they were all about doing those disciplines together. Now, there are both corporate and individual spiritual disciplines. In all Christian traditions, and yes, including Protestant, non-denominational, evangelical churches, have embraced either a long or a short list of these spiritual disciplines. Churches like Calvary Chapel and, and, and non-denominational churches tend to, to keep them kind of short. You know, worship, Bible study, fellowship, prayer, you know, the top, top four, like, and those are great. And they're extremely important. Why? Basically, it's because we are finite, limited, and embodied human beings enjoying a relationship with an infinite, unlimited God who is not currently present in body, but in spirit. We need ways that we can meet with him, experience him, enjoy him. And thankfully, he's given us ways to do that. And Jesus modeled these for us. Jesus modeled them during his life on earth so we can take our cues from him in how we go about disciplining ourselves together and as individuals in order to commune with God. So an incomplete list of some of these disciplines, a couple of which they are practicing here, are worship, fasting, prayer, Bible study, Bible meditation, silence, solitude, secrecy, and I'll get to that, celebration, confession, fellowship, service, giving, Sabbath. All of these are spiritual disciplines. And I wanted to highlight two. Firstly, fasting, because, you know, we're used to worship, we're used to prayer, but we're not necessarily used to fasting. At least, I'm not super used to it, but I'm, anyway. Uh, you might be. It might be something you engage in regularly, and that's cool. But what it is, is typically it's a giving up of either food or drink or another kind of big thing that's usually in your life, <laughs> whether it's social media or, or media in general or other things. It's giving that up for a specific set amount of time in order that you remind and train yourself. And I'm not talking about just your, your spiritual mental self. It's your whole body. You're training your entire self, body, mind, spirit, to remember that there are more important things in life 
than food, than drink, than entertainment, appetites, etc. It's training. It's discipline. It's not fun. Although it is cool. <laughs> but it's not, it's not like a, oh, I'm going to fast today and it's going to be super fun. No, it's hard. But it's cool because it does help train your body and remind your body that God is enough. The other one I wanted to highlight there in that list is secrecy. This is a spiritual discipline that I came across while reading The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. And he, he talks about when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, when you're giving and you're, you're doing stuff for God, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And, and things like that. You know, don't, don't trumpet your good works before others. And, and, you know, he even hyperbolizes it and says, don't even let your right hand know what your left is doing. And how, how the discipline has been cultivated over the centuries is, is that of, in your good works, see how secret you can be about them. You know, don't, don't do them so that you'll be noticed. Don't do them so that you can kind of check one for, for whatever. Like, you're doing it for God, and that's it. And for me, that was helpful because, because it was a, another reminder that I need to let God direct my reputation and my, my PR battles. You know, he's the one who oversees that area of my life. And so that, that discipline of secrecy that Jesus talks about there was kind of made alive in a new way. And so all of these disciplines are, are, are important. But what they're not are the laws of Christianity. You know, Christianity, it's, the salvation is a free gift, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's all these things you need to do, right? That's not what these are. What they are is a means by which we experience the gospel, and all it has to offer us. You know, to cast these aside would be similar to me dismissing the need for my wife and I to have regular times of connection. It's like, no, we don't need that. We're good. No, like, we do need it <laughs> because we are human beings who need to grow and, and, and flourish in our relationship. How much more do we need to, to embrace the, the means and the ways by which Jesus himself modeled for us to commune with our creator. So just like the church at Antioch, we can practice the spiritual disciplines together. And we just, we're doing it right now. We're literally in the middle of a Bible study. Awesome. We worshiped. We prayed. These are the things we do. And we can do more and more. And it's in this context that the Holy Spirit spoke to this gathering of believers. Did he speak audibly with a, with a voice from heaven? It kind of seems like it says that, but I don't know. It, it does also say that these five men were prophets, so it could have been that he spoke directly through one of them. I don't know. But notice like I said earlier, that even after they received this direct instruction from the Holy Spirit, they had a time of fasting and prayer again. Presumably to confirm it, to, to test that 
was this directive indeed from the Spirit. And this falls in line with the pattern we continue to see in the book of Acts, especially in chapter 15, when basically the uh, Jewish Christians in Judea were sowing dissent and opposition against proselytizing the Gentile non-Jewish people unless they became like Jews first, unless they got circumcised, unless they committed to keep the entire law of Moses and then add Jesus on on top. That came to a head in the first church council with the apostles and Paul and Barnabas describing uh, the testimony of the Gentile believers coming to faith and ultimately it was decided, no, we're not going to put this yoke on them a yoke that Jesus does not have for them. And in, in a couple of verses in, in chapter 15, we see this confirming. In verse 22, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. And then in verse 28, it says, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. It's, it's kind of a strange phrase. It's almost like a vibe. <laughs> like, it seemed, like we were just, it just seemed good. <laughs> and, and that's what they do here. They return to fasting. They return to prayer to confirm for themselves in their spirit, is this right? So they go back to the Lord in order to confirm it. And that's smart for us to do as well. As the Holy Spirit guides us, we can, we can collectively give it back to him and say, you know, does this, <laughs> this is kind of what we came up with. Is, does it seem good to you, God? And confirm that with one another. So secondly, the Holy Spirit, well, firstly, the Holy Spirit guides churches that center Jesus Christ. Secondly, what did the Spirit guide this local church to do? And it's the same thing he guides every Jesus-worshiping church to do. The Spirit guides the church to be on mission to proclaim and embody the gospel. Look at verse 4. It says, So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And so they were sent out by the Holy Spirit and went straight to the Jewish synagogues in Barnabas' hometown and proclaimed the word of God. Basically, it's the first open door they they saw. I guess I'll just go to my hometown, Barnabas said. (laughs) And it's not surprising that this is what the Holy Spirit would be expressly guiding Saul and Barnabas to do, since this is exactly the Holy Spirit's purpose the prayer-driven proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. All the way back in chapter 5, we see uh, Peter and the apostles saying, we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The Holy Spirit is here to bear witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's about, as we've been learning over and over again. And so Saul and Barnabas are here in Cyprus, and they're preaching the gospel. And they come across uh, a certain magician, verse 6 says, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And 
We'll get into that. But we find here that Saul starts going by his Roman name of Paul. And so in that shift, we see basically a theological and missional shift as well. Because Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Roman name. Saul is called by Jesus, knocked off a horse, given the mission to proclaim the gospel to whom? Non-Jews. And so it's here that he starts going by Paul. And so while he's here in Cyprus, the Holy Spirit empowers Paul to perform what is called a judgment miracle against this man named Bar-Jesus or Elymas, a magician. Here in verses 6, it says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, that's what Elymas means, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And behold, now the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit not only empowers the positive proclamation of the gospel, but also the counter-proclamation against any worldview that would preclude someone from following Jesus. You know, Saul, when he, when he sees what's happening here between sort of the, the man in charge and his henchman, who's kind of speaking against the gospel, speaking against the Christian faith, Saul is filled with the Spirit, and then he speaks to that situation. And it's interesting that it's during this exchange that Paul's name change is noted. Since just four chapters earlier, a man named Saul, same man, easily fit the description that Paul now gives this magician. Son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And then he was struck blind and needed to be led by the hand. That's, that sounds like Saul. That sounds like Saul in chapter 9. And yet now here is Saul, now Paul, speaking this to this man. So Paul had been there, deceived passionate, ambitiously pursuing what he thought was right and virtuous, actively preventing others from following the way of Jesus. But he was objectively wrong. He was wrong. And why is that? Because Jesus was alive. And that changed everything. Jesus was alive. Jesus told Paul, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> and Paul thought he was persecuting people that were claiming the name of a dead man. No, no, no. He was persecuting people claiming the name of someone who is alive. 
And that person who is alive met Paul and challenged his worldview. (laughs) The gospel of Jesus picked apart Paul's insufficient worldview. Now, there are a lot of worldviews out there, and there are and most of them are leading people away from Jesus. Even leading us as believers away from focusing on Jesus. But with the Spirit's help, by both word and action, in both truth and love, we can help people to see that in the gospel of Jesus, you can have a much more abundant life than anything this world has to offer. You can experience the love of God and the cleansing from sin. You can experience transforming grace and motivating purpose. You can know your maker and reflect his loving character to those around you, to our neighbors, to our city, to ourselves. And notice what stuck out to this proconsul wasn't the judgment miracle, but it was the teaching of the Lord. You, you would have thought it's, it would say, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the fact that his little friend just got struck blind. <laughs> You'd have think that that's what he was astonished by. But no, it says he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished at the presentation of Jesus. We read here a lot of references to the word of God or the word of the Lord or the teaching of the Lord. And it's important to define that term or those terms. The teaching of the Lord here means the gospel as attested to by the entirety of the scriptural redemptive story. It's basically what Jesus meant when he said to the Jewish leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. This whole book points to one person who has done one thing. That's what the Spirit guides every local church to be about, proclaiming this word. And that's what Paul proceeds to do here for almost the entire rest of the chapter. And he uses a litany of other scriptures to point to this truth. From Psalms, from Samuel, from Isaiah, from Habakkuk, another from Isaiah. He's grabbing the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament promises, and he's saying, look at these through the lens of Jesus. That's the teaching of the Lord, the word of God. The word of the Lord. Until he states it outright in verse 38 and 39, he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. The word is justified from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The Spirit guides every local and true church to be about the proclamation of the gospel. And that's what we will do here at Calvary the Hill in this 110, 15-year-old building 
on the backside of Cal Anderson Park in Capitol Hill, God willing for another hundred years. Sometimes when I'm working at the hospital, taking my lunch, walking through Cal Anderson, and I just look and I see there's, there's a church building there, and every week it's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus right here. And I'm just like, wow, that is so awesome. Isn't that exciting? Mm. That's beautiful. And for whatever reason, <laughs> God has blessed us to be here. And here we are. It's, it's beautiful. So what does success look like then? Here we find that it looks like the Spirit guiding the church into trust, faithfulness, and joy. Why don't I say it looks like numbers? If we look back at verse 42, read through 45, it says, As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But things were going well. People were interested. And then they hit a big but. They started getting flack. They started encountering opposition. They had to pivot their entire way of doing ministry away from Jewish synagogues and toward Gentiles, which turns out was God's plan all along. But eventually they were driven completely out of the city. So what does success look like? It doesn't necessarily look like numbers and success and, and growth, although here we see both growth and opposition. But what do we see in Paul and Barnabas? Well, firstly, we see trust. Luke writes here in verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, you can read that as a Calvinist proof text, which many do, and it's a pretty good one as far as a proof text goes. But you can also read it as a statement of trust. Despite persecution, despite opposition, despite difficulty, they saw the exact fruit that God had for them to see. No more, no less. They entrusted the results to him. And that's what we can do. Secondly, we see faithfulness instead of discouragement. They were forced to pivot. They were forced to no longer speak in the synagogue here in, in this city. And yet, they remained faithful. And they even happily embraced the fact that God had them to do that. They quote Isaiah 49 and says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is, a, this is a missional pivot, but it's also a theological one. Paul later will write, 
you know, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. It is the power of salvation to the Jew first and then also to the, to the Gentile. And so for whatever reason, God's plan was for them to present as a, as a banquet table before the, the fellow Jews and those who would partake would, those who didn't would not, and then they were to turn toward the Gentiles. So they were faithful in that calling. They weren't discouraged. They saw in the forced pivot a fulfillment of this scriptural directive that the gospel had to eventually make it to the ends of the earth. And then when they were forced out, here in verse 50, the Jews incited a riot, stirred up persecution, and drove them out of their district. And then we see them shake off the dust from their feet against them, and they went to the next city of Iconium. This was the same practice that Jesus had instructed the disciples in uh, back in the Gospels. Basically, at the end of a ministry, if you're, if you're told to hit the road, hit the road and shake off the dust from your feet. And what that tells the people is, okay, but just so you know, your rejection is serious. And you will be held accountable to that rejection. So after they left, they went on to the next city to continue the task at hand. So we see trust, we see faithfulness, and lastly, we see joy instead of fear. There in verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not a huge conflict fan, like not a big fan of conflict. Uh, Don't like it. I've grown to accept it and even embrace it at times as a way of growing deeper with people. Um, but these newly minted Gentiles who, who were given the gospel because the Jews had rejected it, they were just so happy. In verse 48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. They're like, us? <laughs> yes! I'm so happy. And I'm so glad I don't have to get circumcised. And I'm so glad I don't have to keep all 613 commandments. And I'm so happy that Jesus, this man Jesus, shed his blood and cleansed me from all my sin, all my brokenness, all everything I need healing from. He cleansed it completely. And they were just filled with joy because of that. I will never grow tired of seeing people experience the joy that comes from the gospel. And I'll never grow tired of experiencing that joy myself. And I need to experience it every single day, more and more, as God gives me more and more to do. Because I'm in that camp that gets mixed up in the order. I need to spend more time not doing stuff where I can just like, Sit there and just be like, wow, thank you, God, that you've, you've done it all. You've completely paid the price. You've purchased me by your blood. Now, it's a, it's a challenge to be a church in Capitol Hill. It's expensive to live here. There's a lot of turnover. People consider Capitol Hill kind of like a place to live for a couple months to a couple years, and then they move on to wherever they can afford to buy a house. Uh, Things bring people, come, people go. It's a tough place to plant roots 
There's just not a lot of people doing that. And that can be hard to take. But for whatever his reasons, God has put us here. And may we be a church that isn't deterred by fill in the blank, whether it's trans, uh, turnover or, or numbers not going like this or fill in the blank. May we not be deterred by it, but are able to trust God's plan, be faithful to the work he's called us to, and have a joy that nothing can take away because it's him we're after. And we have him already. Amen? Let's pray. God, I was just